Well, I don't know how many of you get the little videos we send out that are teasers uh, for the coming sermon. But if you received the video, raise your hand if you received the video and you watched it. Okay. Some of you did. Some of you didn't. And what I'm going to do now may seem strange to you, but I'm going to explain what happened. In the video, we made a little joke. Uh, ben and I have been kind of playing around a little bit like he's my, my water boy. Or, or, you know, so when I need water, which I actually could use right now, Ben, uh, he, he, he goes and, he goes and gets, oh, thanks, Phil. Phil is now my water boy. No. Uh, so in the, in the teaser video, I, I start to speak and <clears throat> I have to clear my throat and then I'm like, wait just a second, I snap and who appears with a bottle of water in the video but Ben. Now, I know I have a strange sense of humor. And so there, there's been times in the past in my life when I make jokes that seem like I'm, I'm being like really insensitive to somebody, but it's a joke. And I just want you to know, Ben and I are okay. We're good. Like that was us together deciding to, to do that. And, um, and we really love one another. So just, I'm heading off anybody who's like, he is such a mean pastor. I just, I can't handle him. He's so awful. I'm, I'm really not, I'm, re, I'm really kind of a nice guy, I think. Anyway, so, just so, just so you guys are aware, that was all just for fun. Um, but if you watch the teaser video, then you know today we're going to talk about a sovereign sacrifice, which seems like a contradiction in terms. A sovereign sacrifice, a sacrifice who's in complete control. But indeed, that's what we're going to find in the passage of scripture we're looking at today. If you were here last week, Ben uh, Bechtel preached. He did a great job. And um, one of the things in the passage that he preached that, um, that we want to pay attention to and that he alluded to is that way back in chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus sets his face towards the cross. Ben brought that up last week. And if you did the calculating of the amount of time from that moment when Jesus sets his face towards the cross to the moment we're looking at today, about a year has passed. But if you look at the passage today that we're looking at, and you calculate how far is Jesus from the cross, he's less than 24 hours from the cross at this point. The cross looms large in this passage. And... um, we want, to, we want to see that. We want to understand that. The passage that we're looking at records the Thursday evening, um, the, the Passover supper that Jesus has with his disciples just before he's betrayed and he is sentenced to death and he is crucified then on Friday. And the action in Luke's narrative is really ramping up. It's just going faster and faster. But Luke wants to make sure that you and I don't miss the fact that though things seem chaotic, they seem out of control, Jesus may seem like a victim, helpless to us. That's not the case. In this passage, Luke is showing us that Jesus is in complete control. Indeed, he is our sovereign savior. Or you could say he's our sovereign substitute. Or you might say he is our sovereign sacrifice. The sacrifice of God who is in complete control, even in the midst of these chaotic circumstances. So that's what we're going to look at today. And I hope you'll be blessed, as I have when I've been studying this passage, as we open it up together, I hope you'll be blessed by God 
with this recognition of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So let's, without further ado, read this passage. And after we're done, we're going to pray that Jason Abbott wouldn't be your teacher, but that indeed you'd hear the voice of God in this text and you would have conviction and encouragement from God here. Let's read Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord as it's recorded there. Luke writes, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. Jesus replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Now, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They, the disciples, began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. And I'll invite you to pray with me before we dig into God's word together. We bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this picture of Jesus Christ. In all of his love, in all of his compassion, uh, in all of his sharing of himself with us. And I ask that you would be the one who teaches us today, uh, that we might um, understand what you would have us do, how you would have us live. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We're going to ask three questions. That's a roadmap going forward. Three questions of the text. And in answering those questions, I think you're going to hopefully understand the text a little bit better. So here are the questions. First question, why would Jesus eagerly desire to eat this Passover meal with the disciples? This is the last meal he's going to eat before his crucifixion. It should stick out as strange to us that he eagerly desires to eat it. Uh, In a sense, his meal is the sign of his crucifixion, and yet he's eager for it. So we want to ask that question and understand that better. Second question, who's this Passover supper for? Jesus refashions the Passover here, uh, and, and he directs it 
to a very specific audience. We want to understand what he's doing there. So we're going to ask that question. And finally, the third question, how is Jesus in control of these seemingly tragic and chaotic coming events? I have said already that he is a sovereign sacrifice. How can a sacrifice be sovereign? How is Jesus in control here? So we're going to ask that question. And hopefully through asking these questions, again, God is going to speak into our, our minds, our hearts, our lives. So let's begin with the first question. Why would Jesus eagerly look forward to this meal? Um, Jesus isn't talking about any Passover meal here. He says this Passover, this specific one that we're having pictured here in the text uh, it's the last one with his disciples. And, and I think, you know, if we don't recognize that Jesus is sort of like a prisoner on death row, then we're missing out on what's going on here. This is like a death row inmate having his last meal. And so why would he eagerly look forward to this meal? I've, I've often wondered about death row inmates picking a last meal. I don't know if you've ever thought about what that would be like. I think it would be quite a contradiction. Here you have someone thinking about all the food that they love the most, and being able to choose whatever they want to eat. Uh, Food really is a symbol of life, isn't it? And so they're choosing the symbol of life that they like the most, and yet the whole time it's being infused because of the, the context, the circumstances, as an image of death. So it's this sense of pleasure and pain mixed together. Uh, blessing and curse mixed together. It, it's quite a contradiction. It's quite a paradox, I think, when uh, an inmate would choose a last meal. I read an article about this strange, and I think it's uniquely American uh, tradition. It's a penal tradition or, or a prison tradition of allowing a death row inmate a last meal. I mean, I guess we have the, the, the thinking of like a last cigarette before a firing squad or something like that, which would be similar, but I think this is uniquely American. And uh, what I found interesting is that the vast majority of those death row inmates, at least according to the article that I read, and, and you can actually go, to, go online and pull the sermon up and click the link, read the article yourself, the vast majority don't eat their last meal. They order it, they don't eat it. Uh, they just can't. They can't consume, in light of what's about to happen, that meal and enjoy it. Uh, Carol Pickett was the Texas State death row chaplain from 1982 to 1995. And here's what he recalled about those final meals. He explained, I was there for 95 who ate their last meal. A lot of them would decline. They would just say, I'm getting nervous. I'm getting scared. Very few, I'd say less than 10%, ate all that we brought to them. The fear. It ruins the meal. But in stark contrast to this, Jesus says, I've longed to eat this last meal with you. Why? Why would he say that? Why would he feel that way? Folks, Jesus said it because his death wasn't simply a death like other deaths. Jesus said it because this Passover meal isn't merely a Passover meal like other Passover meals. Jesus' death, according to the Bible, is the death that ends death that that renders death powerless and Jesus's Passover meal here with his disciples is the way in which Jesus intends to communicate that good news 
to his disciples and to us. Jesus' death isn't like any other death. And this Passover meal isn't like any other Passover meal. And that's really important. Jesus longs to eat it because he's going to communicate the gospel to those who need to hear it. He's eager to share this good news with his disciples. For Jesus' disciples, that Passover meal, it actually pointed forward, right? Less than 24 hours forward, but forward to his crucifixion. And it, and it imparted meaning to what was happening there. It said, this death is for you. It's going to take care of your sin problem. For us, uh, this Lord's Supper, which is now the Passover meal that we celebrate, points backward in history to Jesus' crucifixion. And it tells us the same thing. It says that when we trust in Christ, his death was for us, and it takes care of our sin problem. It takes care of our, our enemy, death. And this, this is good news. Jesus loves to share himself with us. He loves to communicate with his disciples. I wonder if you think of God that way. Uh, I wonder if you think of God as, as the God who likes to communicate. The God who wants to be intimately connected to you, to share himself with you. Sometimes we think about God in very strange ways. If we read our Bible, the Bible tells us God does care. He does listen. He wants to communicate with us. But sometimes we think of God as so far away, so transcendent that we can't even, we can't even communicate across the gap that's between us. That's not true. Let me just talk for a second about how God longs to communicate with us and how he is trying to do so, and sometimes we miss it. Just think about, first, this world that we live in. It brims full of the majesty of God. A world that, that sings of him and his glory. I love going to the mountains. I, I feel like the mountains just sing of the glory of God for me. Or the beach. Or looking at the stars. Or exploring the universe. I love what scientists are doing. When, when they get these pictures back of the universe. And we see the immensity of it. How grand it is. This is all singing to us. Communicating to us about the majestic name of our God, the, the character of our God, the glory of our God, how big he is. I love what Gerard Manley Hopkins writes. He's a poet. He wrote this. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil. Like the image there is the dripping out of creation of the grandeur of God. God's trying to communicate to us generally about who he is and his greatness through creation. He's also spoken a, a more specific word about himself. We have the Bible. 66 books which cry out to us about the character of God about his purposes in this world, about who we are, about our failings, also about the glory for which we were created. The Bible speaks of God and tells us that God loves us and tells us that he's holy. It is communication for us from our Lord. God loves to speak to us in his word, the Bible 
In the Bible, if you're reading it, he also encourages you to come and to speak to him. This is what prayer is all about. And in the Bible, he also promises us that he will hear us when we pray to him. I love what John says, the apostle says, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, he says this. This is the confidence that we have towards God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I love it when my kids, in their best moments, okay, hear, hear me saying that. I love it when my kids, in their best moments, want me to listen to them. Not when they're tattling, right? Which is so often, I have five kids, they tattle a lot. I don't love that. But when they long for my ear, I love it when my kids come to me, longing for me to listen to them, to hear them. How much more does the God of the universe love it when his children run to him? Honestly, humbly, so that he will hear. Our God is a communicating God. Here's a big one. God wants to communicate with us by indwelling us. He gives us his spirit. And the spirit convicts us of sin and roots out sin and encourages us towards holiness. Uh, this, is, this is God's stamp of family upon us when he puts his spirit in us. Uh, he is speaking to us. He's saying, you are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. Uh, that's, that's important for us to recognize. God is communicating through the person of his Holy Spirit. And as if all that wasn't enough, our God is pleased to communicate with us through membership in his family, the church. Too often people take for granted the fellowship of the local body of Christ, the church. Uh, We think that it's not that important, but God loves to use other believers to help communicate to us, to work on us, to speak into our lives. Do not despise the blessing of the local church. Look, if you walked into a house an abandoned house, and you you found a box in it, you open the box up and you found a beating heart in the box. That would seem strange to you, scary to you, and really unnatural, wouldn't it? A beating heart without anything else? That's kind of what it would look like if a believer tries to live his or her life out apart from connection to the local body of Christ. As if they could live apart from the head of the church, Christ himself. No, God doesn't want us to operate independently of one another, but in fellowship with one another. He wants to speak into our lives that way. When we cut off the fellowship of the local church, friends, we're cutting off one of the primary ways I think God loves to speak to us. We're silencing God, in a sense. And so back to the original question, why would Jesus eagerly look forward to this meal, this last meal with his disciples? Because he's eager to communicate the good news to them, which this meal will signify. And it will be a reminder of until his return. Remember that today, because we get the privilege of coming up and celebrating the Lord's Supper today. Remember that in this supper that he instituted on this very night that we're looking at, He is communicating his love for you, the gospel to you. He's speaking to you. Allow him to do that today through uh, this traditional meal, the Lord's Supper that we celebrate. What about our second question? 
Who is this Passover supper for? Who is it for? Uh, Jesus makes it pretty clear as he's infusing new and ultimate meaning into the ancient traditional meal, the Passover meal. He makes it clear who it's for. Let's look at the passage again, 19 and 20. These verses, I think you'll get it. And Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Who's the meal for? Who is Christ's body broken for? Who is Christ's blood poured out for? It's for you. It's for me. It's for all those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, as the sovereign sacrifice for them. This is for you. This is the realization I had to come to when I was a non-Christian. In order for Jesus to save me, in order for me to enter into salvation, I had to recognize that his death was for me. And, And the thing I needed to really recognize is that his death was for me because I was part of the problem. That my sins had put him on the cross. That's why his death was for me. Why did I need a savior? Because I was a sinner. I had to to come to that realization that I was part of the problem. In the early 20th century, an English newspaper sent out a request to a number of rather well-known authors asking them to answer a specific question. The question that the newspaper sent out was, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? And... Almost certainly, the shortest reply that they received back was from Christian author G.K. Chesterton. He simply wrote this, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. So true. It's the place that everyone must come to in order to enter into salvation, that I am The problem, that the speck is in my eye, that I am a sinner. I wonder if you see yourself as the right place to start when assigning blame for this fallen world, this sinful world that we live in. Do you you start with your own heart? Do you start with your own actions? Do you start with your own sin? It's the right place for the Christian to start, always. Lord, I'm part of the problem. I'm what's wrong with the world. I need you to save me. I need you to change me. I have to be different. And here's the good news. Christ has died to save you. He has died for your sins. So in the midst of the humility that we we find ourselves in, when we recognize that we're part of the problem, There's this amazing elevation of us, this exaltation even of us, where where God says, yes, you are part of the problem, and I love you enough to die for you. You're that valuable to me. I care that much for you. Humbling and exalting. That's the gospel. It humbles us. It exalts us. It's beautiful 
in that way. So, um, yeah, I hope you can relate to what I'm talking about here. I hope you find yourself in the position of G.K. Chesterton, the, the position we all must find ourselves in to say, I'm part of the problem. And I hope at that point you turn to Christ and you look to Christ and you say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for being my sovereign sacrifice. Well, before we move on to our last question, I want to highlight something here because if you've been listening to my sermons in the last few weeks, then you know that I've been making a lot of what Jesus says and what Jesus does. Because Jesus is constantly, throughout all the gospel accounts, saying things that only God should say and doing things that only God should do. And there is a huge one right here, and we could easily miss it. Because our context is so different than uh, the disciples' context was. So let me just highlight for you this thing that Jesus says and this thing that Jesus does, which unless he's God, he shouldn't say and he shouldn't do. Here it is. The Passover celebration that they're celebrating here. Uh, At the point that Jesus and his disciples are celebrating this Passover meal, uh, the Passover had been celebrated for more than a millennium. More than a thousand years, Israel had been celebrating this traditional meal. And uh, God had instituted it. You can go back to Exodus chapter 12. Yep, Exodus chapter 12. And you can read, God said, this is how you're going to celebrate this meal that I'm instituting. But God doesn't only say, this is how you're going to do it. He says, and this is why you're going to do it. He, He defines why they're to celebrate the meal. Here's the reason that God gives way back in Exodus chapter 12. That meal is to be a memorial day to recall to future generations that unless you are covered in the blood of the sacrificial lamb, God will pour out his wrath upon you, his judgment upon you. And so it harkens back to the Exodus event where uh, the Israelites put blood on their doorposts. And the angel of death passed over their houses. God's saying, unless you are washed in the blood of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, God's judgment will fall upon you. Over a thousand years of celebrating it in that way. And very specific rules God gave for how and why it should be celebrated. And yet, right here, what does Jesus do? Jesus says all that. It's about me. The reason you've been celebrating that, it was pointing to me. The blood of the lamb that you must be covered in, that's my blood. This is about me. He takes history and he says, this is what history means. He takes the laws of God and he says, this is what the laws of God point to. He says in no uncertain terms to anyone who is tracking with him in that context, I am God. In the flesh. I say the kinds of things that only God can say. I do the kinds of things that only God can do. We don't want to miss that. You may want to make something of Jesus. But you can't make less of Jesus than he makes of himself. And Jesus clearly believed he was God. And what you do with that. Makes all the difference. Do you believe? Jesus Christ is God? If so, there are ways that you must live 
There's an allegiance that you must pledge. I don't don't want us to miss that, that claim to divinity here. It's important. It governs everything that Jesus says and how we should hear it. Well, let's ask the last question. This This will be briefer than the other points. How is Jesus in control? Or how can a man who's about to be betrayed be in control? Or how can a man who's less than 24 hours away from his crucifixion be in control of a situation? Or how can a sacrifice be sovereign? That's the question before us. We get a hint at the end of the text when Jesus says this, verse 21, 22, and 23. Look at these verses with me. Jesus says, the the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. The disciples began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. So let's run through the participants in that meal and let's ask the question, who is sovereign? You got the disciples. No big surprise to probably anyone here. They are not sovereign. They are confused as all get out by what Jesus says here. They have no clue who would betray Jesus. Sometimes we wrongly think that Judas was the obvious choice. Like all the disciples when Jesus said this were like, yeah, it's probably Judas. No. They have no clue. In fact, they're not even sure it's not them. Uh, They're arguing about it. They are not sovereign. But then there's Judas. We think, well, he's the betrayer. He's in control, right? Well, no. First of all, Jesus knows that he has a betrayer. So he's found out. He's been discovered. He is not in control. This is bad news for him. He's like, "Uh uh-oh, Jesus knows. But even if you don't buy that, then all you have to do is go back to last week's passage. And in verse 2 of this chapter, Jesus says, or uh, Luke tells us, that Satan had already taken influence over Judas. Judas isn't even in control of himself. He's been influenced by Satan. He's not sovereign. But Jesus affirms the outcome here, doesn't he? That's really interesting. He affirms the outcome. Look at what he, he says. He says, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, verse 22. The Son of Man will go as it's been decreed. In short, Jesus is saying, I'm going to go to the cross because it's been decreed. Or I'm going to go to the cross because it's been determined or pronounced or commanded or ruled or decided. So then the question becomes, when we're talking about sovereignty, who decided? Who decreed? As we close here, I want you to clear your minds for just a second. I want you to open up your imaginations. I want you to to go way, way back with me. Back before the foundations of the earth were laid. I want you to open up your minds to the perfect unity, the perfect love of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, our triune God, the perfect counsel they keep with one another, this three-in-one God of ours, the omniscience, uh, the power, uh, endless power that they have. And think about their discussion of creation. 
Well, they see what will mean when they create our first father and our first mother. Oh, they will rebel. They will sin. They see that clearly. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They know what it will mean to redeem a fallen race of people like you and me. Oh, they know well what it will take that the Son, the eternally blessed Son, will need to put on flesh, identify with the fallen race, live a perfect life, and die in our place. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They know all of that. They know that there must be blood and a body broken to atone for our sins, our rebellion. They know this. And yet, nonetheless, knowing all of this, knowing it perfectly, knowing it better than we know it right now, they create it. Sovereignly. In control. Seeing perfectly where they were headed. And so Jesus in this passage is a sovereign savior. A sovereign substitute. A sovereign sacrifice. He marches to the cross. We don't have a clue about power. In Jesus' day, power was thought about like Caesar, the Romans. They're powerful. They're in control. But I can tell you right now that what Luke wants us to see is that there's one who has more control than they do. Far more. And he sits at a table with his disciples. And he says, this is where I'm headed. This is where I'm going. Rome could line up all of its resources between Jesus and Calvary. And they would not be able to stop him. Because God has decided to make a way for us in Christ Jesus. I hope you today hear him calling to you. Turn to me. Trust in me. Your sovereign sacrifice. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture and we thank you for the beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, our sovereign sacrifice that's in it. May we be a people who never forget the mercy, the love that you have communicated to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if we hear your voice today, Heavenly Father, help us, enable us to turn to you in repentance and receive his sacrifice and our salvation. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.